Chapter 4 The Natural Aristocracy Benjamin Franklin is the most important American statesman never to have been president. Franklin played a pivotal role in the revolution, helping to draft the Declaration of Independence and then serving as a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. He was minister to France during the Revolutionary War, securing what proved to be critical French loans in support of the effort. But Franklin looms large in American history more for symbolism than for statecraft. He represents an American archetype, perhaps the American archetype, the self-made man. One of ten children, Franklin received only two years of formal education, which ended when he was ten years old. Seven years later, he left his home in Boston for Philadelphia to make his own way in the world. Civically engaged, business-oriented, technology-obsessed, and socially skilled, Franklin was our founding yuppie, declares the New York Times columnist David Brooks. Franklin would have felt right at home in the information revolution, Walter Isaacson writes in his biography of the statesman. We can easily imagine having a beer with him after work, showing him how to use the latest digital device, sharing the business plan for a new venture, and discussing the most recent political scandals or policy ideas. The essence of Franklin's appeal is that he was brilliant but practical, interested in everything, but especially in how things work. This might make Ben Franklin sound like a perfect proponent of the drop-out-of-school-and-start-a-company view of life. To the extent that any schooling helped him, it was the training he received during his apprenticeship as a printer. But it turns out that Franklin had a surprisingly broad view of the kind of education individuals need in order to flourish. In 1749, he published a pamphlet, Proposals Relating to the Education of Youth in Pennsylvania, in which he outlined his plans for a new academy in the colony. Franklin believed that education should help people navigate the real world as they entered careers in politics, law, business, and other fields. At the same time, he wanted young men to gain exposure to the great outlines of knowledge. The purpose of their education would be to produce true merit, which meant joining ability with the inclination to serve mankind, one's country, friends, and family. Franklin wanted students to be part of a residential college, even specifying that it would ideally be somewhere with a garden, an orchard, a meadow, and a field or two. They should live together frugally, he wrote, and exercise frequently to render active their bodies. The subjects Franklin suggested they study were broad and diverse. Arithmetic, astronomy, geography, religion, agriculture, and history along many dimensions of laws, customs, nature, and morality. In particular, he stressed the importance of the study of English over Latin and Greek. He urged that greater attention be placed on writing than on oratory, as he believed communication in the modern world was more effective through the written than the spoken word. One wonders what he would have urged once he saw the impact of television and the Internet. The school Franklin envisioned in the middle of the 18th century largely resembles what we understand a liberal arts college to be today. Franklin struggled to put his ideas into practice at the time. His pamphlet got the wheels turning for plans on a school in Philadelphia, but when the academy officially opened in 1751, an old guard of pious educators blocked his efforts at reform. 
the trustees he had helped recruit continued to prioritize the study of Latin over English. But in subsequent decades, the academy grew into the University of Pennsylvania, which went on to become one of the world's most distinguished liberal arts schools. Franklin likely wanted others to obtain a more general education than he himself had received because he realized his own success was the result of an intense and broad-ranging curiosity. He was fascinated by everything he saw around him, from dolphins to lunar eclipses, and he experimented with ideas from electricity to refrigeration. At 21, Franklin founded a small club of young professionals called the Junto, which met regularly to discuss topics including politics, science, and business, almost like a college seminar. And while he was always trying to make stuff, Franklin was also philosophizing and imagining in the abstract. This is how, despite his lack of a formal education, he became a major scientific figure of his time, recognized with honorary degrees from Oxford, Yale, and Harvard, and awarded the Copley Medal, an earlier version of the Nobel Prize in Science. Isaacson quotes Dudley Hirschbach, Harvard's Nobel Prize-winning scientist, on Franklin's scientific accomplishments. His work on electricity was recognized as ushering in a scientific revolution comparable to those wrought by Newton in the previous century or by Watson and Crick in ours. If Franklin saw education as the path to service for mankind, his great contemporary, Thomas Jefferson, made a more urgent connection. A liberal education would ensure the survival of democracy. In 1778, Jefferson presented to the Virginia legislature a bill for the more general diffusion of knowledge, in which he argued that all forms of government could degenerate into tyranny. The best way of preventing this, he wrote, is, quote, to illuminate as far as practicable the minds of the people at large, unquote. The study of history could serve as an especially effective bulwark, allowing the people to learn how to defeat tyranny from past examples. Jefferson would return again and again to the importance of education in a democracy. In his elegant and erudite book, Beyond the University, Michael Roth, president of Wesleyan University, explains, This would create a virtuous circle of learning and a citizenry thoughtful enough to protect itself from governmental overreaching. Over the course of his political career, Jefferson advocated a number of measures to spread education far and wide, including publicly funded schools and the establishment of a national university in Washington. After serving as Secretary of State and President, he returned to this central obsession by founding the University of Virginia. In 1818, at the age of 75, Jefferson gathered together friends and associates to establish a new school in Charlottesville, Virginia. It was a university, so thoroughly the work of his hands that it was to become known simply as Mr. Jefferson's, John Meacham writes in his biography of the third president. Its objectives were a mix of the practical and philosophical, to train statesmen and professionals, to expound on the principles of freedom, to teach methods of agriculture, and to enlarge the minds and morals of the young. His proposed curriculum was more academic than Franklin's, with a good deal of math and science, as well as modern and ancient languages, law and history, writing and grammar. Jefferson was one of the earliest proponents of electives, 
believing that students should practice the same freedom at school that they were allowed in a democracy. And as with Franklin's school, Jefferson's university was non-sectarian. In fact, the University of Virginia was unique in that its physical layout was centered not on the chapel, but on the library. Franklin and Jefferson shared the view that education was a way to ensure that the new republic would be a place of merit, where birth, bloodlines, and hereditary privileges would not count for much. Franklin was a self-made man, and throughout his life he extolled the virtues of those who had risen through hard work, talent, and skill. He thoroughly enjoyed the company of tradesmen, small entrepreneurs, and shopkeepers, seeing in their rise the idea of equality that was at the heart of the idea of America. Jefferson's prose differed. He often wrote about the need to create a natural aristocracy. While this sounds like a plan for our House of Lords, Jefferson, in fact, intended the opposite. His natural aristocracy was based strictly on merit, to be refreshed constantly, as opposed to an unnatural aristocracy, in his words, based on birth, wealth, and privilege. Jefferson believed that all societies inevitably have elites. Someone, in other words, has to be on top. But that America's elite should come from finding the best and brightest and educating them well. The best geniuses will be raked from the rubbish annually, he wrote. The United States would be able to benefit from those talents which nature had sown as liberally among the poor as the rich, but which perish without use if not sought for and cultivated. For Jefferson, there was one step crucial to creating a genuine natural aristocracy. The poor and rich had to have equal access to a good education. That's why, despite being something of a libertarian, he repeatedly proposed that the state pay for universal primary education as well as fund education at later stages. He was met with opposition from many quarters, mostly those wary of big government or higher taxes. Yet, interestingly, one of his most ardent supporters was an old friend and political opponent, the conservative John Adams. The whole people must take upon themselves the education of the whole people and must be willing to bear the expenses of it, Adams wrote. There should not be a district of one mile square without a school in it not founded by a charitable individual, but maintained at the public expense of the people themselves. Jefferson's fear was that without such a system of public education, the country would end up being ruled by a privileged elite that would recycle itself through a network of private institutions that entrenched their advantages. What would these founding fathers make of America today? What would they make of a country where... As Thomas Edsel noted in the New York Times, 74% of students attending the most competitive colleges were raised in families in the top income quartile, and only 3% come from families in the bottom quartile. Even among the best students, family background makes a huge difference. High-scoring students from families in the top income quartile are almost twice as likely to get college degrees as students with similar high scores from families in the bottom quartile. In addition, criteria for admission into the best colleges and universities that seem purely merit-based, 
like grades, SAT scores, and participation in extracurricular activities, are actually correlated with family income. The correlation is not as strong for test scores as for outside activities. You are only able to take that fascinating, unpaid summer internship in South Africa if you have the means. Edsel quotes the education expert Anthony Carnevale. The education system is an increasingly powerful mechanism for the intergenerational reproduction of privilege. Half a century ago, the American middle class had a powerful path to a high-quality education. In the decades following the Second World War, the GI Bill gave a whole new group of Americans access to the best colleges, and tuition was affordable even for the middle class. Most importantly, public universities were booming. In 1960, an 18-year-old living in California could get a superb education at any of the University of California campuses, including the one in Berkeley, which has many departments that rank in the top five worldwide, at no cost whatever. Zero. In fact, in those days, a California resident could go through one of the world's best public schools before attending Berkeley for college and later for graduate school, and his or her entire world-class education, from kindergarten to a PhD, would have cost him or her virtually nothing. As late as the 1970s, Berkeley's annual tuition for undergraduates who were California residents was around $700. For the 2014-2015 academic year, tuition, not including room and board, cost California residents $12,972. Non-residents are charged an additional $22,878. Berkeley's own estimate of the total cost of attendance for a non-resident student living on campus is over $55,000 a year. And unlike the very top private schools, Berkeley does not have the endowment to provide need-blind financial aid. As a result, the makeup of its student body today is probably quite different from what it was three or four decades ago. Most state universities face even deeper pressures than Berkeley, which occupies a special place in the public eye and can raise private funds as well. Once highways to the middle class, these schools are reeling from decades of reduced support from their state governments as well as rising costs. As a result, many have created the party pathway, described in Elizabeth Armstrong and Laura Hamilton's book, Paying for the Party, in which an increasing number of rich out-of-state kids who can pay full tuition, get relaxed admissions criteria, special majors, inflated grades, and fancy facilities. The bright, low-income students who are on the mobility pathway get none of this. Facing academic, economic, and social pressures, they have a higher burnout and dropout rate. Those who graduate do so with a mountain of debt. The best colleges in the United States aspire to an idea of merit, of creating Jefferson's natural aristocracy. And they do give scholarships to many students who could not otherwise afford to be there, though this still helps a very small number of poor students. In addition, the number of people applying to the top schools has exploded, and the admissions rates are now so low often under 10%, that the admissions process can seem quite arbitrary. Compounding the problem is the fact that elite schools provide many special preferences for legacies 
underrepresented minorities, and, in the most significant deviation from merit, recruited athletes. A former senior admissions officer at an Ivy League school told me, I have to turn down hundreds of highly qualified applicants, including many truly talented amateur athletes, because we must take so many recruited athletes who are narrowly focused and less accomplished otherwise. The problem, as he notes, is not athletics per se, which combines talent and discipline in an exemplary way. It is that the process of recruitment has become so intense that the system is now distorted. William Bowen, a former president of Princeton University, has documented and argued persuasively that over the last few decades, college sports programs that recruit athletes have warped those colleges' academic values. An admissions official told me that many now-taken athletes who score 150 to 200 points lower on the SATs than other students, a much more significant drop in standards than for legacies or minorities, to build their sports teams. The recruited athletes often struggle to keep up with the academic demands in the classroom, while good amateur athletes are frozen out of college sports. The entire process shifts the focus of the campus away from academics. And yet no president of a liberal arts college dares suggest this system be changed. In a 2012 essay in The American Conservative, California political activist Ron Unz presented statistics seeming to show that the nation's top colleges and universities have over the past two decades maintained a de facto quota for Asian American students, limiting them to about 16.5% of the student body, despite their exploding applicant numbers and high achievements. The numbers may not be exactly right. Two Ivy League admissions officers estimated to me that Asian Americans actually make up more than 20% of their entering classes. Many don't declare their race or are racially mixed. But in comparison, at schools that are less reliant on nebulous admissions criteria such as character and being well-rounded, like Caltech and Berkeley, Asian Americans make up about 40% of the student body. Winners of the United States Olympiads in mathematics, computing, physics, biology, and chemistry, and of the Intel Science Talent Search have been more than 60% Asian American in recent years. A school full of Olympiad winners would in fact lack balance, and achievements based entirely on numbers and tests are not the only measures of a student's potential. Yet it's worth bearing in mind that historically, colleges have employed intangible criteria in admissions specifically to keep out bright and ambitious newcomers. In his book, The Chosen, The Hidden History of Admission and Exclusion at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, Jerome Carabell demonstrates in painstaking detail how subjective admissions requirements like interviews and involvement in extracurricular activities were put in place by Ivy League schools largely to keep Jewish admissions from rising in the 1920s through the 1940s. Unless there are aggressive efforts to compensate for the advantages of wealth, including attendance at private schools and participation in luxury extracurricular pursuits, the American elite educational system runs the risk, in Jefferson's terms, of creating an unnatural aristocracy. At one level, these concerns and complaints might seem irrelevant. American colleges and universities are booming. Their success and fame have attracted applicants from around the world. A good college degree 
has become more crucial in everyone's mind. The post-industrial economy rewards people who have academic training and credentials or knowledge workers even more so than before. College sports have become more popular and more profitable for the schools. But they face one trend that seems utterly unsustainable. The rising cost of college. The average college tuition has increased at an eye-popping pace, over 1,200% since 1978. The first year complete records were kept. That is four times the pace of the consumer price index and twice as fast as medical costs. This extraordinary cost spiral in an age when the prices of almost all goods and services have declined is surely one of the most striking phenomena in modern American life. And it has largely been accepted without much controversy. The rise in cost is at the heart of many of the concerns about the value of a liberal education. After all, when one is questioning whether a product is worth it, be it an outfit, a car, or an education, crucial to that determination is its price. A liberal education was affordable to a middle-class family in 1965. It is much less so today. That means families have to make trade-offs between spending money on an education and earmarking it for other things. It's often noted that the data show that a college degree improves one's lifetime earnings, so that even a large investment in a college education is worth it. That may be true, but it also explains why families so anxious about this onerous price tag worry endlessly that their son or daughter could jeopardize everything by majoring in the wrong subject or getting a less marketable degree. The fact that we now use the language of return on investment to describe the experience of getting educated is revealing. Why has the cost of college risen so quickly? One plausible explanation, offered by the economists William Baumol and William Bowen, is that certain labor-intensive industries, such as education, can't replace humans with machines or expand production lines in the way other industries can. The economist Robert Frank gives an excellent example to explain this basic idea. While productivity gains have made it possible to assemble cars with only a tiny fraction of the labor that was once required, it still takes four musicians nine minutes to perform Beethoven's String Quartet No. 4 in C minor, just as it did in the 19th century. A seminar class at a good college will tend to have a ratio of one professor to, say, 15 students. If you believe that's the best way to teach, it can't be made more efficient. This is why costs in education rise much faster than in the general economy, where automation and outsourcing can replace expensive labor in some way or the other. It's true in other sectors of the economy as well. If you are happy listening to a recording of the same Mozart quartet, you can do it virtually for free but the live experience has become much more expensive over the years. Whether it's the Berlin Philharmonic or Beyoncé, the money is in the actual concert, not the digital recording. There are probably other factors as well. Bowen points out that it's difficult to measure productivity in a field like education, that universities might have inefficient administrative systems, or they might be price-insensitive when it comes to academic quality, spending whatever it takes to be the best. All of this is true. But it might also be that the entire system of education in the United States is a poorly designed mishmash 
combining some of the worst elements of the market and the state. It shares this character with healthcare. In both cases, the consumer wants the product and yet can't really judge its quality. Can you really decide that you don't need an MRI or a college degree? Additionally, the consumer doesn't pay directly for the product, at least not the full price. Third-party payments, often from the government, have complicated processes and timelines which further obscure price signals and market discipline. Finally, it's not clear how to judge the value of an education. Is it just the college degree that matters, or is there some broader measure of a good education? And how would you measure the latter? Perhaps for these reasons, over the last 30 years, while inflation has been wrung out of the American economy in almost every other sector, education and healthcare costs have risen annually at many times the rate of inflation. Measuring the quality of education turns out to be extremely complicated. Most colleges are judged by a variety of factors, including resources, faculty, and facilities. Chief among them, though, is the average SAT score of entering freshmen. Yet the test scores used in admissions are a measure of what colleges take in, not what they produce. The fact that an Ivy League school has freshmen with high SAT scores tells us that it is a good magnet for talent, but nothing else. What should matter is how students, including those with low SAT scores, improve over the course of their time at school. But what is the measure by which to judge that improvement? Academically Adrift, the book mentioned in the last chapter, has brought this issue to the national fore. Using the Collegiate Learning Assessment Test, the book's authors found that 45% of students showed no improvement in critical thinking in their first two years of college. Subsequent tests have demonstrated that this pattern continues in their junior and senior years as well. Why? As the book shows, in many colleges, students take easy courses with few assignments and little homework or reading. This results in little improved output. If these are the problems of a liberal education today, there might be a solution in the form of technology. Education is a sphere of life remarkably unchanged over the course of centuries. We learn today in ways that would seem largely familiar to the ancient Greeks. A teacher stands in front of a group of students and lectures them, at times involving them in discussion. All the revolutions in information technology in recent decades have had hardly any effect on this basic mechanism or on the fundamental operations of schools, colleges, and universities. Until now. Enter MOOCs, or Massive Open Online Courses, among other online systems of instruction that promise or threaten to change the way education is provided in the United States and around the world. MOOCs are courses that can be taken online by watching videos of lectures and completing assignments and tests that are graded by computer programs or humans. In some cases, students engage in virtual classroom discussions through structured chat rooms or bulletin boards. So far, MOOCs rarely offer any official form of credit, though that is likely to change over time. The larger idea behind them is simple. A course that could be taken by a few hundred people at a university is now available to tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands, across the globe. 
By early 2014, the two main platforms for MOOCs in the United States had around 10 million students collectively. Coursera, the largest platform, had students from nearly 200 countries taking almost 600 courses in a vast diversity of fields. MOOCs represent the most ambitious effort to widen access to education in history. And they have a lot of people at universities very worried. In October 2012, I was asked to moderate a panel for a conference on education sponsored by Time magazine and the Carnegie Endowment. My panel included four distinguished college presidents and Andrew Ng, one of the founders of Coursera. At the time, Coursera was just half a year old. Professor Ng, a Stanford computer scientist, made a presentation in which he spoke of the great potential of MOOCs and of his ambition to provide new educational opportunities to millions of people. Using his own course as an example, Ng explained how online technology had massively expanded the number of students who could enroll in a single class, from 500 or so at Stanford to tens of thousands online. He was modest and stressed that this new model of education is in its early stages and would need many adjustments. The educational establishment could not have been more skeptical. All the college presidents on the panel expressed concerns and doubts about this new technology, assuring the audience, mainly other college presidents, that a physical campus, in-class teaching, and the pure experience would always be essential and irreplaceable aspects of higher education. Lots of people sign up, but most drop out. The former president of one prestigious university complained. Ng acknowledged that the completion rate was low, but he noted that the completion rates for his Stanford courses are also low. Hundreds of people attend the first class or two, but never return. Another attendee insisted that video lectures by star professors could never replace the personal interaction between scholars and students. Ng agreed, reminding everyone that MOOCs are intended primarily for people in developing countries who would otherwise have little access to the college seminar. He also noted, however, that there is little contact between professors and students in large lecture courses at American universities. In general, the panelists and audience treated Ng with courtesy but persistent skepticism. I couldn't tell if they were sure his newfangled ideas wouldn't work or if they were worried that they would. A 2013 survey bears out this anecdotal impression. Only one in five professors polled by Gallup believed that online classes could be as effective as the in-class experience. For me, the discussion had the feeling of deja vu. I had spent 10 years at Newsweek, one of the world's most successful print publications with tens of millions of readers and hundreds of millions of dollars in revenues. While the internet was blossoming, we had told ourselves that we still had unique advantages, that people wanted qualities particular to our product, that the magazine business had gone through cyclical challenges before, and that we would weather the storm. As it happened, the Time Conference was held on the day that the final edition of Newsweek was published. It has since been resuscitated with a more limited circulation. My only suggestion to the audience about online education was that they keep in mind Newsweek's fate. The internet was transforming all industries in some way or another. The chance that it would leave education alone was highly unlikely, 
and to fail to recognize that was not the way to plan for the future. The educators' concerns were understandable. Two recent studies found that of millions who signed up for MOOCs on the two largest online platforms, only 4% for Coursera and 5% for edX fully finished the courses. The media used these low completion rates to cast doubt on the promise of the technology and to suggest that MOOCs had been overrated after all. But this is a misreading of the results. Recall that anyone, anywhere in the world, with any level of education, can sign up for a MOOC. There is no barrier to entry, so it should come as no surprise that many of the people who do sign up are not serious about it. Coursera reports that the dropout rate after the first week is very high, almost 40%. But then, of the students who stay with the course after the first week, nearly 50% completed. And keep in mind that the initial enrollment numbers are so large that even a 5% completion rate is gigantic. In 2012 and 2013, approximately 43,000 students finished the first 17 courses offered by edX. That's an average of 2,529 students per class, which would be a five-fold expansion of even a large lecture course. Yale's Nobel Prize-winning economist Robert Schiller taught his course online in 2013 for the first time. More people took and completed it in that one year than the total number of students he had taught in his 32 years as a professor. The potential of online education is dazzling. Anyone, no matter how rich or poor, young or old, Haitian or Mongolian, can access the world's best courses, watch the greatest lectures, and study those subjects he or she had always dreamed about. Khan Academy, the extraordinary online platform with 3,000 different videos that teach everything from algebra to biology to history, has already changed the way we think about learning. One crucial new method is that of flipping the classroom so that students listen or watch a lecture at home and then work on problems with teachers in school. It's a much more efficient and effective use of both the teacher's and a student's time and energy. Passive learning at home by yourself, active learning at school with the teacher helping. Like any great technological shift, MOOCs and similar ventures will have ripple effects across the field of education. They will force teachers to do better since they will now be measured against the world's best. They will pressure colleges to contain costs, perhaps focus on the things they do well, and find new ways to enhance productivity. They will make students decide what really matters to them, knowledge, credentials, classroom discussions, and find the best ways to get it. The best colleges will face fewer challenges, partly because they offer a unique experience and largely because they are selling membership to a valuable private networking experience. But new models of education will rise, like the Minerva Project, a for-profit liberal arts school that provides a pared-down college experience using online classes and eliminating costly accessories like facilities and sports teams. And this is just the beginning. Online learning technology will prompt changes in ways we have not even anticipated yet. MOOCs are barely three years old. Key to the innovations in teaching that could come from MOOCs is the promise of big data. 
As millions of people take online courses, the institutions that offer them will have immense amounts of information in their systems. Properly analyzed, this information could produce a revolution in learning. Education has always sought to cater to the individual. I learn differently than you do, and ideally, we would all be taught in ways that are targeted to each of us specifically. That's why, for most of human history, the very rich had their children taught by private tutors. In his book, The One World Schoolhouse, Khan Academy founder Salman Khan points out that education today relies on a model for the classroom from the industrial era. In the mid-19th century, when Prussia decided to provide education for the masses, it modeled its schools on the factories of the time. Students were bunched together by age and put on a virtual conveyor belt. Instruction was thrown at them, and they picked up whatever they could as they were pushed forward to graduation. Other countries used similar methods. Perhaps this was the only way to educate large numbers of people, but education was not customized to the individual in any sense. In fact, the more people who had to be educated, the less customized the experience. Now that can change. With big data and strong analysis and smart programs processing that data, educators can learn a great deal about what is and what isn't working. As students progress through the course, their teachers could get feedback related to each individual's performance. The system could use early indicators, like answers on quizzes and problem sets, to create specific remedial content, change the pace, and tailor reading and exams in ways that would be most effective for that particular student. If thousands of students around the world stumbled over certain questions and quizzes, it would send a broader signal to educators that the teaching of that section or the design of the tests required fixing. Big data could be an early detection system that allowed for quick course corrections. A well-structured online course that uses the benefits of big data would thus develop like a tree with each student proceeding down a particular set of branches specifically tailored to his or her strengths and weaknesses. This is a revolutionary concept because it alters one of the fundamental rules of education. Until now, it had always been assumed that increasing the number of students could be done only at the cost of providing less personal attention to each individual. In industry jargon, scale and customization were inversely correlated. But now scale and customization can be positively correlated. The more students who take a course, the larger the database created, which can then be analyzed and applied to personalize each student's experience. This might be the path to highly effective individual learning on a mass scale. Yet the greatest promise of MOOCs and online learning in general remains the original intent, expanding access. Stameka Yuvalich Trumbich, an education expert formerly with UNESCO, noted in 2011 that the number of people enrolled in higher education across the world was 165 million. At current growth rates, that number would reach 263 million in 2025. But it will be impossible to get to those numbers using the present system of education. Accommodating the additional 98 million students would require more than four major universities, with 30,000 students each, to open every week for the next 15 years, Uvalich Trumbich explained. 
that pace of expansion is not happening anywhere. Even in China, where the government has made a major commitment to enlarging access to higher education, the number of students is growing at a much faster rate than the number of faculty and facilities. Inevitably, the greatest impact of MOOCs will be in the developing world, where it will be possible for millions to get educated who simply would not have otherwise, says Richard Levin, the CEO of Coursera. Already, 72% of registered users of edX courses come from outside the United States. The makeup of those enrolled in MOOCs is quite diverse. The vast majority are not in the college-age cohort. They range in levels of education, though most have acquired some post-secondary degree. The courses offered cover a mix of pre-professional and general education topics. A study published in November 2013 found that of the students enrolled in at least one of the 32 MOOCs offered by the University of Pennsylvania through Coursera, 50% said they were taking it out of general curiosity or just for fun. 44% said they were enrolled to gain specific skills to do my job better. In other words, a large portion of MOOC users are interested in acquiring a liberal education or enhancing the one they received years ago. We are moving toward a time when anyone can get elements of a liberal education and yet be disconnected from the experience and cost of attending a liberal arts college. I said elements of a liberal education as it might well be that residential colleges, classroom seminars, late-night discussions, and extracurricular activities are collectively essential to providing the complete experience. Certainly for the best colleges, say the top 50 in America or the top 100 worldwide, the benefits of being admitted to a small club will justify a steep price. But that doesn't mean important aspects of this education cannot be provided to millions of people around the world at a fraction of the cost. And if the value of a liberal education is real in opening the mind, preparing people for the fast-changing world, and building the capacity for freedom, then the fact that millions of people in China and India and Russia and Brazil will have access to it is cause for celebration. Let's return to that 2013 study showing that half of the people who sign up for these online classes are doing so not just for a specific professional purpose. We see the same phenomenon in the explosion of interest in adult learning courses, books, and videos. Why are all these people around the world signing up for courses in art history and psychology and physics? If it doesn't help them get a job, why do they want to know this stuff? 